From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The secretive B-21 Raider bomber program is the future of U.S. long-range air power. Two new studies look at the platform from different perspectives and argue that the current production plan is insufficient. We'll talk all things B-21 with the authors, the Mitchell Institute's Mark Gunzinger and Dr. Chris Bowie of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And we'll give you an update on the Army's future long-range assault aircraft program and we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? William Tell is back. After 19 years, the Air Force has resurrected its William Tell air-to-air weapons meet. It'll take place in the skies over Savannah, Georgia, from September 11th to 15th. William Tell started out as a gunnery competition, but the new version incorporates the whole air-to-air mission, from planning to recovery, with ground crews and the whole Air Force team involved. Australia has decided not to try to acquire B-21 Raiders from the United States. It was never a solid plan, but well-placed folks had suggested it, And the government was taking a look. But this week, Canberra announced that the acquisition was off the table. We'll be talking all things B-21 with our guests, Dr. Chris Bowie and Colonel Mark Gunzinger, later in the program. From Air and Space Forces magazine, a quick update on the Boeing T-7 Red Hawk, which we recently reported had solved some of its teething problems and had its production decision delayed. The other shoe just landed. And it's that IOC for the new trainer is now spring of 2027. So don't be surprised to see Congress adding some money to the budget for even more T-38 life extensions. The government of Canada announced an intention to seize, and by now may well have seized, an Antonov-124, the very large cargo jet belonging to Volga Dnieper Airlines that has been accumulating parking fees in Toronto since the beginning of the Ukraine war. What would Canada do with an airplane like that? Well, they plan to give it to the people who built it, Ukraine. And the Air Force has a new brigadier general. Now, that's not usually a big story, but it's a little bit more interesting when the general's last combat mission was 64 years ago. His name is Edwin Aldrin. You probably know him as Buzz. Promotion day is May 5th. He's 93 now, but can still probably take you in a fight. Bago? JJ, thanks very much for that. Great, great news on Buzz. Uh, It's overdue. I think everybody knows that he was the lunar module pilot uh, on Apollo 11, uh, the first uh, moon landing, uh, and indeed the inspiration for Buzz Lightyear, right? Uh, And and just popularizing the name Buzz uh, on all sorts of levels. But I think people forget that he was a Korean War hero, uh, somebody who shot down two planes uh, during the conflict. His gun camera footage is very famous of a MiG-15 in the sights getting uh, shot up. He was an extraordinary test pilot. He's an academic legend who was known as Dr. Rendezvous because he got his doctorate 
uh, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was a veteran of uh, Project Gemini, uh, where uh, he demonstrated that extravehicular activity could be done with the right kinds of handholds. This was after people were exhausting themselves, flailing around. Uh, and without his work, we wouldn't have gotten to where we needed to be. And he is uh, also the last survivor of the Apollo 11 crew and one of a handful of men who are alive today who walked on the moon. So very happy to be seeing Buzz recognized because in part it was the space program that sort of torpedoed his career. Um, it was it, it, very well done. That's all I have to say. A reminder of a time when Air Force officers could be warriors and scholars. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, although we would put Jimmy Doolittle uh, in that category too, right? I mean, Jimmy, do, you know, people think of him as a war leader, but he was also somebody who had a doctorate uh, from uh, MIT uh, at a time, uh, you know, just, just a fascinating time in terms of having been one of the pioneers uh, of a sort of blind navigation, I think, as they called it back then. Well done uh, for Canada also in getting, uh, sending that AN-124 back to perhaps its proper owner. Well, certainly its original owner and the folks who created it, it's not quite a replacement for the uh, Maria that was destroyed at the beginning of the conflict, but it'll be interesting to see how Ukraine chooses to use a strategic airlifter. And William Tell, right? Uh, great decision. And one of those things that people, you know, when it was sort of unhinged at the time, there were some people who were saying, wow, you know, these are still useful skills. So kudos uh, to the Air Force for bringing it back. It is part of the warfighting focus that, among other things, uh, Secretary Frank Kendall talked with us about a few episodes ago, restoring the warrior culture to the Air Force. Indeed. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Coming up, our conversation on B-21. But before we get to that main event, Vago, you had an interesting conversation with Ryan Anger, Bell's Vice President and Program Director for the V-280 Valor that won the Flara competition recently. He's down at Quad A, I believe. Uh, he is indeed, and uh, that's where we caught up uh, with him. Yeah, I believe it's the first uh, interview from the company since uh, the Government Accountability Office's decision to uphold the U.S. Army's original award to Bell and Lockheed Martin's decision not to go to court to stop the contract. Here's my conversation with Ryan Anger. Ryan, congratulations again, and thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. It's uh, great to be here. Great to hear from you again. And you guys are uh, there at uh, Quad A. Wall-to-wall uh, -wall Army uh, aviation, and and really, this is one of the big uh, news items, and we really appreciate you taking time to uh, talk to us. The Army is on a very aggressive schedule. Obviously, uh, the down select happened last year uh, because of the protests. Here we are; uh, it's roughly May where we're sort of getting started. It's a very aggressive schedule over the next 19 months that culminates in the six prototype aircraft, or the or the first six aircraft, let's put it that way, delivered by 2025. What are the next most immediate items and what does this next phase look like for you guys? No, that's a great question, Vago, and I'll have to refer you to the Army on some of that. But what I can tell you is, you know, it's been a journey. So uh, we've worked together for a while and you've been tracking the, the progress of the program really over the last decade. And so as we've, uh, you know, worked from a clean sheet design to demonstrating capabilities with our uh, air vehicle concept demonstrator V280, um, it's been exciting and we've been able to prove out 
a lot of the concepts that we've been focused on in support of this future long range assault aircraft opportunity. So we're excited right now. We're excited because, uh, you know, we're, we're delivering a capability uh, for the squad focused on the soldier. And, uh, and what we've been able to show with our demonstrator and what we've been focused on is making sure that that capability is transformational and affordable um, and delivers what the Army needs for their modernization activity. Ryan, uh, this program is a first on many levels. First, that it's the Army's first digital aircraft. And, and second, the number of Army folks who were embedded in both of the programs. And so the customer has a lot of visibility uh, on what it liked about uh, the design, what it would like to change. Army leaders have told us they want to execute as quickly as possible to field capability. Um, at this point, do you guys have any sense on what it is the Army wants to change? What does it want to retain as it goes through this 19-month uh, uh, intensive design period or refinement period, if you will. Yeah, certainly we're very familiar with the requirements uh, that the Army has established for the program. I can't get into those too much, but what I can tell you is that over the last decade, uh, in terms of the digital thread and in terms of developing and demonstrating an air vehicle, which uh, of course for us was the tilt rotor uh, sized for an Army squad, uh, we're able to demonstrate the types of speeds and ranges and capability that uh, I think will serve the Army very well for the future long-range assault aircraft. So we're able to build uh, on that foundation very significantly and, and uh, very capably. Uh, and when you look at other aspects of a weapon system to include uh, you know, the MOSA architecture, the sustainment aspects of the program, we've been focused in those areas as well uh, leading up to this uh, weapon systems development effort. But at this point, no, no sense in how much different the final aircraft is going to be from uh, what it is that you guys demonstrated. No, not able to comment on that at this time. Let me take you to uh, the ramp uh, that you guys are doing, both on the personnel uh, side of things. This is very important, obviously, uh, in Fort Worth, where you have a great facility. During this period, uh, you're not only going to be working on the final design of the airplane and refining it, but also uh, facilitizing for production and then getting uh, the manpower, the people power in place to do this. You guys have been uh, aggressively hiring, including uh, from Sikorsky uh, and from Boeing, uh, trying to fill out uh, the personnel side of things, both on production as, as well as design. What does your facilitization, supply chain, manpower ramps look like? What is it you guys have got to accomplish in the next 19, 24, 36 months? Yeah, it's a great question, Bago. And, and I think what you've seen uh, from Bell is significant investment in uh, our facilities and in our capabilities. So we did a groundbreaking of our drive systems test lab um, not too long ago. We also did a groundbreaking of a new uh, future vertical lift uh, weapon systems integration lab, both there in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. So we're really excited about uh, bringing those capabilities online to support the uh, FLORA program. Uh, you also might have heard of our Manufacturing Technology Center. That's another significant capability uh, located in that area, which is allowing us to prove out a lot of the manufacturing and inspection and quality concepts um, that will enable us to deliver this affordable solution. So we're really excited about um, all those efforts, and there will be more uh, in the future as well. Uh, when you look out across our industrial base and, and Team Valor teammates, uh, there's significant efforts going on there as well in terms of modernization and uh, bringing in more of the digital aspects of engineering and manufacturing. So uh, a lot of exciting stuff going on there. Um, as an enterprise, Bell is uh, holding and have been holding some uh, uh, hiring events. 
and trying to bring additional talent into uh, the exciting programs we're working at Bell to include uh, Flara and Farah. Um, so there is a lot going on, a lot to be excited about and, and a lot of opportunity. How does the digital nature of this change the entire endeavor? Well, it's unique. I mean, uh, you know, for, for Army Aviation, um, we're going to be able to deliver a platform, a weapon systems based on, you know, this digital thread and, and digital models. And, and Bell's been fortunate to have a couple of reps and sets using these digital tools on our, on our commercial programs, uh, for example, as well as uh, on our uh, V280 demonstrator and our, our Farah uh, CP. So we're very familiar and, and very comfortable and, and see the value of, uh, of that digital engineering and that digital enterprise. So um, we are excited about that. Uh, the ability to take digital designs from engineering through manufacturing and then into sustainment is something we've explored and, and done a lot of development work on over the past five or so years. And, uh, and we really see the value out of it, uh, both in early stages of development, as well as uh, life cycle affordability and sustainment of these platforms for the long term uh, for the Army. You, you talked about life cycle and you guys are trying to design this in both in the case of, the, of uh, Flora, but as well as the future armed reconnaissance aircraft, the FARA, uh, which are, it's a rematch uh, with Sikorsky again. You mentioned uh, your ma manufacturing technology uh, center. Glenn, uh, Glenn Isbell is doing a terrific job there where you guys are looking at figuring out technologies that you can insert into the platform and then also revolutionizing manufacturing to try to take cost out. How is the push-pull working there, right? Because there are a lot of moving parts to this program that you're overseeing, both to satisfy a requirement, insert new technology in it, while also changing uh, producibility. How does the center kind of fit into that triangle, if you will? Yeah, we have a great partnership with the uh, Manufacturing Technology Center. And in fact, you know, the important thing to do is make sure as you, as you enter into some of these efforts that you're managing risk appropriately. And, and the way we manage risk is start these efforts early um, and develop those capabilities to a sufficient level that we can understand the risk and, and, and manage that going into a, a larger scale uh, effort and incorporating some of those technologies into uh, designs like uh, the design for the future long range assault aircraft. So it's really interesting when you walk that shop floor, it is, it is very modern. Uh, you can tell how it uses the digital tools to uh, improve efficiencies in, in the operations. Some of the capabilities that that, uh, that, that center uh, brings to bear is significant reductions in the number of manufacturing steps. Uh, as well as streamlining that, uh, delivering a quality product at the, at the end of the day. So yeah, we are excited about it. We've got uh, you know program engineers embedded with that team on the manufacturing floor in the, in the MTC, and we've got their folks embedded in our team uh, as well. So we are helping to inform uh, their manufacturing technologies, and they are helping to inform uh, our designs uh, as we work this effort. Um, let me ask you one last question. Uh, obviously, uh, you guys are also competing for FARA. What are some of the things you guys have learned, right? I mean, they're very different aircraft. Uh, one uh, was a focus on uh, range and speed uh, which uh, and payload, which were important for FARA, uh, whereas the Army is looking for something very different from the FARA aircraft. From your standpoint, what are some of the lessons you've learned in the process of FARA that you think are going to help you guys as you get into this, uh, you know, second competition uh, for the future of Army aviation. This one on the uh, reconnaissance attack side of the equation. Yeah, I think what we've shown with the the V two eighty with the Flora effort is uh, we're a company and an organization that can make a commitment and execute uh, on that commitment. 
Um, that's certainly what we showed with the uh, with the V280 effort when the, the joint multi-role tech demonstration. Um, and what we've also shown is we uh, have an ability to understand the customer requirements and, and address those requirements through uh, innovative designs. And I think that's something we did on, on Flara. And I think uh, that's something we're doing on the FARA program as well. Ryan, thanks so very much. I uh, really appreciate it. Best of luck and hope you have a very successful Quad A. What do you guys have lined up that you're going to be rolling out aside from the fact that uh, you're moving ahead on the Flara program? I think that'll keep me plenty busy. <laughs> very good. Uh, thanks very much. All the best to the team there. Thanks, Vago. And joining us now are two longtime air power experts, Dr. Chris Bowie, who has long been a respected analyst in government at the RAND Corporation think tank. He also ran Northrop Grumman's internal think tank, the Analysis Center. He now writes for the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, an independent Washington think tank. And his uh, new report is Air Power Metamorphosis, Rethinking Air Combat Force Modernization. Uh, he is also joined by Mark Gonzo Gunzinger, a retired United States Air Force Colonel, B-52 pilot, operations planner, who is now a key member of the team at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He also is an alumni of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, otherwise known as CSBA. And Gonzo's new report is Understanding the B-21 Raider, America's Deterrence Bomber. Gentlemen, welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Vago, JJ, great to be here with you today. An absolute pleasure uh, having you guys on. These are absolutely fascinating studies in part uh, because they started from uh, very different questions, but each uh, reach uh, similar conclusions. Mark, your study uh, looks at the right size for the bomber force and the mix of aircraft required for future conflict. Chris, uh, you take kind of a whole of Air Force uh, view, reallocating missions among different types of aircraft. You're both focused on potential conflict in the Western and deterrence in the Western Pacific, but you also see sort of more broadly an increased utility uh, for longer range uh, stealthy uh, platforms, which is somewhat unsurprising given your backgrounds. Mark, start, start us off with yours. You talk about the current mix of bomber uh, you find shortfalls in capacity and capability. Uh, this is something that's been brewing uh, for uh, a long time. It's, it's good that we launched the B-21, but it was a bit of a compromise design at the time it was uh, launched. Part of the issue was if we build slightly shorter range, slightly smaller airplanes uh, with a hard cost cap, we will be able to get more of those airplanes uh, at the end of the day than, than something, maybe something more exquisite, which was a popular term uh, at the time the airplane was launched. Why are stealthy platforms like B-21 preferable and more flexible? Uh, and why do we need more of them? You know, Because you're proposing trading off between weapons load and stealth, for example. Walk us through your case. Sure. And uh... That's, uh, that's a great question to start off with. Uh, irrefutable fact, DOD's combat air forces are overbalanced today towards shorter range aircraft with smaller payloads and bombers, and most are still fourth generation or earlier systems that simply were not designed for today's contested operational environments, for operating in the, uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific against a military who is now a peer in many of its capabilities with the U.S. military. So that calls for a shift towards longer ranges, larger payloads, increased survivability because we could be fighting a conflict against uh, the PLA that will, uh, in environments that will remain contested throughout the conflict. And that essentially is what the bomber force brings to the fight, especially penetrating bombers. The problem is 
we don't have enough of a bomber force. It is the smallest and the oldest bomber force that uh, our nation has ever fielded, at least since World War II. Uh, we're talking about 141 total bombers. And that total force could generate maybe 30 to 40 sorties per day if all combat-coded aircraft allocated to the Pacific. And that includes about six B-2 sorties. So that's why Air Force Global Strike Command has said its bomber inventory is now a high-demand, low-density force. And I want to point out one last thing that uh, uh, you mentioned, and that is balancing range with survivability, with payload capacity, with the overall size of the bomber force. And, and that drove to a solution that uh, a slightly less expensive bomber, perhaps with less payload than uh, uh, B-2s, that could be bought in increased numbers. The real driver for balancing the attributes of the B-21 was to ensure the Air Force could buy a sizable number of them. And we are recommending in our report a future force of at least 300 total bombers, which would include the uh, uh, 76B-52s that are, are currently in the force. So that's what we mean by sizable. It's the capacity that we need to deter and if necessary, defeat PLA aggression in the Pacific, the capacity we currently lack. Now, I won't embarrass Chris by pointing out that we first worked together nearly four decades ago. Instead, I'll ask him this question. One of the underpinnings of your analysis is to think about air power independent of the size or nomenclature of the platform. We're used to thinking of airplanes as fighters or bombers or pursuit aircraft or cargo. How does your view of future air power change that paradigm? In looking at the B-21 or a large stealthy aircraft, it offers a number of advantages uh, for future combat. Typically, a bigger airplane, you have larger weapons bays, uh, you have uh, larger apertures, you know, your, your sensors, and uh, you have more engines, and thus you can generate more electrical power. So um, in looking at that for the future, the, something like the B-21, it's got, you know, a combination of stealth, range, payload, multifunction apertures, and an open architecture system like JJ, which you wrote about uh, when you were at CRS. And so although the aircraft is viewed as a bomber, you know, it certainly strike is a primary mission, uh, but you also need to look at it, not just ground targets, but it could also be a fairly formidable anti-ship system. Uh, in the past, we used to arm uh, B-52s with harpoon missiles, and uh, uh, you could look something, think of something similar to that like that for the B-21. Uh, more interesting, though, is its potential as an air-to-air -air platform. You don't typically think of a bomber as an air-to-air -air system, but um, there was a very fascinating analysis done at CSBA by Dr. John Stillian, in which he looked at historical trends in air-to-air -air combat and found that in you know the more recent decades, missiles are now the primary kill mechanism, and uh, it those reduce the value of maneuverability and speed. Thus, a bigger airplane with 
bigger apertures that can carry very large missiles could be a pretty significant uh, addition to augment our air superiority forces. So that's an interesting uh, facet. In addition, you know, we are looking in the future at laser weapons. And accordingly, uh, a big airplane with more electrical power could generate, uh, could carry, you know, a larger laser cannon. Finally, um, having payload bays, uh, you know, would open opportunities for intelligence surveillance reconnaissance missions, electronic warfare missions, and even possibly carrying, uh, you know, small unmanned uh, aircraft uh, into the battle. So overall, this platform offers a lot of utility for a wide range of missions and its range and survivability make it very well suited to helping deter our primary adversary in the Pacific, uh, uh, China. Well, let me just jump in here uh, real quick. Chris, uh, I, I completely agree with you. In fact, in our report, we talk about how maritime strike is probably going to be the premier mission for B-21s, carrying Lorazims, JASMDs, and other kinds of anti-ship munitions. Defeating that first uh, wave of amphibious assault vehicles, the PLA Navy against Taiwan, for example, uh, countering the SAGs that would be uh, screening an amphibious assault uh, on Taiwan, and of course, other uh, maritime targets as well. Why? Because only the B-21 has the range to operate, well, from the U.S. Uh, second island chain, even first island chain, to bring the mass of weapons needed to strike those thousands and thousands of very mobile and moving targets and do so in the space of a couple of days at the start of the war. Uh, because frankly, if we do not halt and then blunt amphibious evasion against Taiwan in the first few days, then China may very well be able to uh, achieve the fate accompli. And that's all according to our national defense strategy. And only the bomber force and only B-21s can bring the mass and precision at range to do that. Counter air, I'm totally on board with that. Bombers can carry uh, large numbers of long range uh, uh, counter air weapons, air to air weapons, uh, perhaps queued by fifth gen and other assets that are uh, operating deep in contested airspace. Those are all operating concepts that I think the Air Force uh, is indeed looking at. So I'm totally on board with that. But that said, we do not advocate cutting the size of our fighter force uh, to build up the bomber force. Uh, that, that is a kind of Rob Peter to pay Paul maneuver that the Air Force has been stuck with for decades because it's lacked sufficient budget. Its fighter force is already too small for the operational demands on it. The bomber force is already too small for operational demands it must meet. Uh, both the fighter force and the bomber force must grow. And that's exactly what the Air Force has said, but it can't do it without additional resources. I, I would uh, point out that uh, John Jumper, I mean, I, this is going back some 20 years ago, if not maybe even more, would talk about whether or not a bigger airplane, I mean, we, we had dinner once and the conversation was, you know, like a 737-sized airplane, hmm, interesting, uh, that would just carry lots of really good anti-air weapons. And maybe that's a better idea because, you know, he was saying that once you get into those sort of long range uh, envelopes, Chris, I think that you're talking about, it's really more up to the weapon than, than how quickly you can move that nose, uh, that 20 degrees 
through, through the arc to get a snapshot off. Let's talk a little bit about getting to capacity uh, a little bit, right? Uh, these airplanes are going to be made at, at uh, the legendary Plant 42 uh, out in Palm, sunny Palmdale, uh, California. Uh, Chris, uh, you're proposing to increase production by creating another assembly line, uh, which is a pretty serious uh, undertaking. How do you envision that working ultimately? Because Mark, you know, you you mentioned the government setting up an assembly line, right? You know, that, that then gets the government into production of airplanes again, something we haven't had in, uh, in a while in the United States, you know, sort of walk us through how it is that we could do this and the kind of investment we would have to make to make it. I mean, we understand we need two submarines, attack submarines a year, at least, if not three attack submarines a year, and we can't, you know, get them facilitized to do that. You know, would it be any easier for combat aircraft, I suspect maybe a little bit easier. How do you guys work through this? Uh, maybe Chris, artist offer Mark, vice versa. Go yeah, Vago, let me uh, let me take a stab at it. Um, I, I won't jump right to a second assembly line. Uh, we make three recommendations in our report for accelerating the fielding of an operational force at B-21s and doing it this over the next decade, not in some distant 2030, 2040 uh, future because the threat is there this decade. First, keep all of the Air Force's current bombers in the inventory until the B-21 force reaches full operational capability. And that means extending the B-2 into the 2030s. Second, increase the Air Force's top line and end strength to support a larger bomb force and simultaneous transition to B-21. And finally, acquire the B-21 21, at least 20 per a rate of 20 or more per year. Build, build to that. And that's because uh, uh, that's there's historical precedent for that. That is the rate that we uh, uh, achieved with all of our, our, our last four bombers that the Air Force acquired, except for the, uh, uh, the B-2, of course, which was truncated at 21 aircraft. But its planned max production rate was 22 per year. And we bought our last four bombers, each one of them within 10 years from the start of production. We need to do the same for the B-21. Maximize production rate. And if that requires building a second production line, then it's worth it from a deterrence perspective, from a warfighting perspective. So I should point out, right, it was going to be 132 it was that the was that the program of record, Mark? Am I getting that right? For yes, that, that's that's yeah. exactly right. Go, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. So you know, you basically have two options, or m- maybe a two and a and a and a, an additional third. One is to go to the current prime and you know see how how much you could increase production at Plant 42 from the you know what's been publicly stated is uh, they're planning about 15 jets a year. So what I was looking at was trying to go to 30 jets a year so that we could, you know, rapidly increase our capability and the size of the bomber force. So in order to get to 30 a year, you know, I don't know if it's possible to do that at plant 42. I mean, that would be one option. If you increase the rate, you're going to uh, reduce, you know, cost uh, so that you could have an impact on the cost per unit. The, the other option is to set up a second line. 
And there are two ways to go there. One is to have the existing prime build a, a, a second production line. Uh, that could be in another uh, location in the country. Or, uh, as has been done with a variety of missile systems, is you have a, a second company license build uh, the aircraft. Now, this has not been done with something as complex as a you know a modern combat aircraft. But what the analysis from these munitions contracts illustrates is that the cost of setting up that second line is compensated by the value of competition in the uh, procurement. So basically, you'd have two lines. You'd have the current prime and the license-built line. And each year, they would compete for a larger share of the production contract. And that competition would generate cost savings and uh, reductions in overall cost. Chris, uh, uh, Gonzo, you're real quick. I'm concerned that budget constraints are going to uh, force the Air Force to buy the B-21 at a, a less than optimal rate, maybe eight or nine per year. This is theoretically, uh, the Air Force hasn't said that. I, I think the minimum should be 20 per year. If they can build to 30 per year, uh, at the current facility, co-locating a, a second line at, at the current location or another location, then uh, I'm all for it. The objective, I think, for both of us is field them as quickly as possible because we need them to deter China. Okay. In both of your studies, you recommend acquiring a greater number of B-21s than currently planned. Right now, that number is 100. Around 2035, the Air Force will have that initial 100 in hand, and then they're going to have to decide whether to spend their next dollar on the next B-21 off the line or further life extending the B-52 fleet. As a practical matter, how long should the Air Force expect to keep non-stealthy bombers? Does it make sense to have an airplane in inventory more than 100 years after it was designed? Well, JJ, uh, on uh, what you just said, I think in terms of the total bomber force, again, budget constraints could force the Air Force to uh, retire B-1s, his remaining B-1s, and even B-2s as B-21s are delivered. And it's not just because of dollars, it's because it doesn't have the personnel that continue to man old and populate the new force with the maintainers and the pilots and crews and so forth uh, that'll make them uh, uh, operational. So the Air Force is going to need the resources to keep the old and the new well into the future. So we're not maintaining this bomber bathtub that we currently have. Uh, the Air Force has said it wants at least 225 bomber force in the future. It currently has 141. So it doesn't make sense to retire current bombers, including uh, uh, standoff non-penetrating aircraft, because we lack long-range strike capacity. And we're going to need both standoff in the form of B-52s and B-1s strike capacity as well as penetrating capacity uh, well into the 2030s. So I'm a fan of keeping the B-52s around because we will need the capacity that they bring to the fight in long-range strike uh, uh, weapons, munitions, uh, mining, uh, uh, maritime strike, and all the other things that B-52s uh, can do to uh, 
would support all joint force operations. Let me uh, just uh, jump here in a minute, uh, Gonzo. Uh, we're running down uh, on time, but very quickly, you know, there are going to be some in the audience who are listening to this and they're going to say, look, here are two guys, you know, Northrop supports uh, their organizations. Uh, you know, one is Northrop alumni, the other is part of the bomber mafia. What's the sort of broader traction uh, for this? Is anybody in the Air Force listening to this? Because I asked uh, Secretary Kendall, at least late last year at the, on the sidelines of the Reagan Forum, right after the West Coast Aerospace uh, Forum, you know, whether or not there could be an air-to-air uh, airplane or, or a different variant of the B-21. And he said, look, I mean, the most important thing is just getting the B-21 in service as the B-21, right? More broadly, is anybody listening and is there any more money that's going to be going to do this? Because without Bucks, no Buck Rogers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, is any more money going to go to toward the kinds of things that Chris and I recommend in, in our reports? And uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a lot more money available for the Air Force. The Air Force, Air Force's budget has lagged the Navy's and the Army's budget for the last 31 years. But on the demand side, our nation needs more long-range penetrating strike capacity if it's going to be able to do what the national defense strategy says it must do, deter a Chinese offensive, and if it occurs, to prevent it from succeeding. It is math. We lack the strike capacity at range to do that today. The Air Force has said that. We have a bomber force that's less than what we're going to need for one major conflict with a peer adversary plus nuclear deterrence. And the only way that we can rebuild the capacity that we've lost over the last 30 years for long-range strike is by increasing the Air Force's uh, our resources. You know, I took a little different uh, cut at this in, in my paper. And I, what I did was I assumed a worst-case scenario, basically, that the Air Force's budget, share, or top line remains flat. So what I looked at was roughly what you'd have to do in order to increase your long-range strike potential within budget top lines. And you have to make some pretty, you know, difficult cuts. So, you know, I estimate you'd have to retire basically your entire legacy force uh, of fighters, F-16s, F-15Cs, and A-10s. Uh, that would yield a very significant savings in uh, sustainment spending. And then at some point, you'd have to stop F-35 production, at least for the Air Force, and shift those funds over to B-21. So you'd end up with a smaller fighter force, but a rapidly expanding long-range strike force. So, you know, there's going to be risks associated with that. But, uh, you know, ideally, uh, you'd like to see an increase in the Air Force's top line or budget share in order so that you don't need to make as many of these cuts uh, as would be required. And that is one of the that, significant uh, differences. Well, let, me, let me jump in. Cannibalizing the Air Force to build up the bomber force is a prescription for defeat. DOD must make trade-offs. Absolutely right. But where should it look to make those trade-offs? And that's cross-domain, 
cross services. Look towards army forces that we're not going to need in the Pacific and may not need in Europe in the numbers that we currently have. Look at uh, naval capabilities that are going to be much less effective in the Indo-Pacific, as well as in fight with uh, Russia in the Baltic region and so forth, so on. You've got to look across capability areas, across force structure, across the services for these kinds of trade-offs. Not say, okay, Air Force, what are you going to cannibalize so you can build up another part of your force? That's been tried. It doesn't work. And if we try it again, like I said, it's a prescription for defeat. Dr. Bowie's study can be found at csba.org. Mark Gunzinger's study at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Let's go out on this question. A bomber can't do anything if the bays are empty. What is the role of munitions procurement in all of this? How do we inflate that at the same time that we're increasing the number of bombers? Is that an essential part of what you project in your respective studies? I would say that there's a lot of value to a low observable aircraft because it can get closer to a target and thus it can deliver, you know, shorter range, uh, less expensive munitions than, you know, something that has to do very long range standoff where you're basically, you know, firing off a small airplane with propulsion guidance and, and weapons. So there's advantages to low observables in terms of reducing the cost of striking a target. In longer term for munitions, I think we need to go to a more modular concept where, you know, you would have uh, multiple types of engines, maybe uh, multiple sensors that could all be mixed and matched. And thus you could have multiple companies producing these components and then the services could put them together or, or you'd have a prime integrating them. But uh, I think that's long-term where we need to start moving so that we can get our inventory levels up. Absolutely agree with you, Chris. Uh, aircraft, the empty bay is uh, not going to be terribly effective in a war fight against China or anyone else for that matter. The Air Force is pressing hard to develop the next generation of munitions, you know, fifth gen missions for fifth gen, air, fifth and sixth gen aircraft for that matter. But across DUD, we still see billions of dollars being poured into some hypersonic weapons that aren't going to be cost effective. 45 to $50 million for a single long range hypersonic weapon that the Army is building for a single target. That doesn't make sense. That could buy a lot of uh, JASM and RASMs and, and other kinds of weapons that can be air delivered far more cost effectively against far more targets with, than what uh, the Army can bring to the fight. So again, you have to look at the trade-offs to increase weapons production because we're not going to be able to surge that production during a war fight. We need those inventories in the Pacific and in Europe as part of our deterrence posture. Guys, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolutely terrific conversation. You're welcome back uh, aboard uh, any time. Uh, thanks so very much. Uh, great and thought-provoking work. Much appreciated. Our pleasure, Vago. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.